0: right good morning we are going to visit Samaria today that is not a place that most people think about except we do have one cultural expression that is still used rather frequently if somebody stops to help a stranger we call them a good Samaritan that's right in fact often on um, RVs on the back you, you see a sticker on the back and it says good Sam Club and you know what? I used to see that driving down the freeway on the back and I used to think, that's really cool. These RV campers, they have a club and if somebody breaks down, they're going to come and help them and help them with any kind of problems that they're having. I thought, that's really neat. That's awesome. People banding together to help each other on the road. Well, it's really just a company like AAA for RV people. It's so, so it's really roadside assistance insurance. But uh, So they kind of monetize kindness so I was a little disappointed in that but that's such an American thing to do to to take a a good kind gift and make a business out of it but anyway now um, why would I associate the word Samaritan with freely helping strangers because of the story Jesus told right in Luke chapter 10 a scribe asked Jesus which is the greatest commandment in the law and Jesus said what do you think What does Moses say? And the scribe said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him do this and you will live. But he's thinking the scribe that asked the question what does that mean? So in Luke 10 29. He says but wishing to justify himself he said to Jesus and who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. So you remember the story there's a poor man going down the road he gets attacked by robbers beaten really badly laying there on the ground bleeding and broken. A priest comes by across where the man is and sees him and passes on the other side of the road and doesn't do anything. Then a Levite comes by. He's a temple worker. A religious man obviously. He sees the man and he passes him by. But this Samaritan comes by. And two really important words show up there. He felt compassion. He felt compassion for this man that had been beaten up. So he takes him. Puts him on his donkey. Takes him to an inn. Tells the inn that he'll pay all of his expenses. He bandaged him up. Did all of that for him. And Jesus says... Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the scribe said, well, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. So who is my neighbor? It's somebody that's in need. Now, uh, the story was shocking at the time, not because it was, it's just a good lesson on being kind to people and what it, what uh, loving your neighbor means, but the Jews in the first century despised Samaritans. So for Jesus to make a Samaritan, the hero of the story, the example of of a good deed and a better person than the priest and the the Levite, that's kind of a, a shocking thing. So the point is though, it's compassion, not identity or blood or culture or anything like that that makes a man the keeper of the commandment. So who were the Samaritans? Well, After King Solomon you'll remember Israel was divided into two nations. So there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the heart of the northern kingdom was a very fertile area. um, That later came to be called Samaria by the Assyrians. And the northern kingdom Israel was so idolatrous and so evil. That in 722 BC God gave the nation over to the Assyrians. They conquered it and they took the people away. They took the population away. And the Assyrians themselves said just from the capital city they took about 30,000 deportees and took them off to another land. And then the Assyrians brought other people from somebody else, other group they conquered and planted them there in northern Israel. So it was a good way to keep captive people sort of off balance. You conquer them then you move them all around. So they have to think about how to build a new life they don't have time to rebel you know they have to think about other things so it's a really good way to build an empire actually so those people that came in they intermarried with the Israelites that were already there now the northern kingdom of Israel was super idolatrous already and those people that came in would have been very idolatrous that's all they would have known to do so they intermarry. they start becoming one people and a really curious thing happens they start being very idolatrous there and they start to have a serious lion problem now lion problem I don't mean telling lies I mean lions like eating you so lions just started showing up in that part of in Samaria and knocking off way more people than lions normally would in that time and the problem was so bad that word got back to the king of Assyria that they're having this huge lion problem there in Samaria so he figured that the local god Yahweh the true God to us but he would just consider him the local God. He must be mad so he took one of the captive Israelite priests and sent him back to teach the people about Yahweh the God of the Jews. This is all in Second Kings chapter 17. Well the priest comes and what happens is a really weird blending of Moses and this pagan religion so it kind of becomes a combination deal a syncretistic blending of these two Uh, religions which of course is going to be unfaithful to Moses in some pretty significant ways especially that they're not going to go worship in Jerusalem at the temple that God had ordained for that purpose but they build a a, a temple of their own on Mount Gerizim and they worship there and things like that they have golden calves around all kinds of stuff so uh, you might remember in John chapter 4 Jesus and a Samaritan woman sitting at a well together have a conversation about all of that Uh, now remember that Samaritan woman was surprised that Jesus even talked to her because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews would regard Samaritans as Gentiles or worse so they didn't have any relationships with them they didn't interact with them they didn't even travel through their territory if they wanted to go north and beyond to Galilee they would go around and, and go up north they wouldn't go straight through Samaria so um, there was a lot of bad blood there people often forget that Jesus enemies you know how they used to say he had a demon the people that hated him the Israelite Pharisees and people you might forget that they actually in John chapter 8 verse 48 also said Jesus is demonic but then they said he's a Samaritan I mean that was like the meanest thing they could say about him so then they just made that up but that's what they said so Um, getting up to speed here in Acts chapter 8 this intense persecution that we saw last time from Saul against the church in Jerusalem causes many in the church to flee to other places in verse 3 of chapter 8 Saul began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women he would put them in prison therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word Philip went down to the city of samaria and began proclaiming christ to them so here we see that preaching the word is preaching christ that's really clear and we see the passion that the church even under persecution has to share jesus Which we know is rooted in the declaration that Peter made to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 verse 12. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven but which has been given among men by which we must be saved. And that's the message Philip wants to take to Samaria. There's one savior that God has provided for the world. His name is Jesus. Let me tell you all about him. So a big question is with all this tension between Jews and Samaritans are they going to listen? Are they going to listen to a Jew? Well verse 6 the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was being said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing for in the case of many who had unclean spirits they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice and many who had been paralyzed and the lame were healed so there was much rejoicing in that city wow Wow. Now remember, uh, Philip was one of the seven men chosen by the apostles in in a mercy ministry feeding widows in the city of Jerusalem. Stephen was the standout guy of those seven. He was the first on the list and he was the only one that actually said something else about. Acts chapter 6 verse 5 says they were all, all, all the seven were men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Good, solid saints, you know. And we saw that the apostles laid hands on the seven. And after that, Stephen had was given a measure of power. He had a healing power that was very much like what the apostles had. And he was doing signs and wonders. So um, that was huge. So Jesus gave the apostles these extraordinary gifts. That, and they could pass them on to other people. But as we will see, the people they passed them on to could not pass them on to the next person. So... everything pointed back to the apostles. That way we're assured um, that the apostles are the final authority in the church for everything, for faith and practice and everything we need to know. Because it all goes back to them and they got it from Christ. So it goes back to him ultimately. So Philip is there in Samaria preaching Jesus and he does remarkable works of power through this gift that he's been given, casting out demons and healing all kinds of people. Now, there's a very interesting individual that's a part of this group of people he's been ministering to Um, he's a famous person he's a celebrity he's not a ruler he's not a soldier he's not an athlete he's not a philosopher or a poet or an actor or a famous musician he's a magician let's look at verse 9 now there's a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria claiming to be someone great and they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had, a long, had for a long time astonished them with his magical arts. So no, he wasn't doing card tricks or sawing a woman in half or anything like that. He's not like Harry Houdini or David Copperfield or, or even Daffy Duck nothing up here nothing up here and nothing up here he's not that kind of a magician he wasn't doing some kind of act at the Samaritan Hilton or something in their night spot so a magician in the ancient world was someone who was said to be able to manipulate or control the natural world through magical arts like spells or incantations or some metaphysical daring do some kind of crafts you know that they have. So they might also claim um, to divine the future by secret knowledge, knowing the future. So people went to them the way people go to fortune tellers and psychic healers and faith healers today. In other cultures, you know, they call guys like Simon a witch doctor or a shaman or a medicine man. They're all kind of cut from the same cloth. In the Bible, they're called magicians or sorcerers. Magicians in the Bible are always bad guys always magicians um, served the wicked rulers of israel that northern kingdom and they also served the foreign enemies of israel so in some form magicians worked against nearly all of the famous prophets that we know from the old testament they were against them and the old testament is just loaded with condemnation of these uh, magicians in fact the law of moses itself directly forbids magical arts in the law of Moses the Jews were not to practice any of the things that these other cultures practiced that were claiming to be supernatural in some way in fact just before entering the promised land in Deuteronomy Moses told the people this is Deuteronomy 18 verse 9 When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. Yeah they used to burn their children as part of this stuff. One who uses divination. That's trying to find out what the future is. One who practices witchcraft. Or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. So one of the big reasons God was driving out the Canaanites and the Israelites were going to be given their land is because they did all that stuff. They not only sacrificed their children to gods like Molech but they did all of this casting of spells and using mediums and divining the future and all these kinds of things. Reading chicken guts or tea leaves or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Strictly forbidden in the law of Moses for any Jew to participate in anything like that. That's the stuff that turns hearts away from the living God to other things. It's putting man's trust in things that are not real. So in the ancient world was full of amulets and spells and charms as well as all kinds of divination techniques to read the future or get advice from spirits or these secret ceremonies and mysteries and all that kind of stuff. So In fact, if you go to Haiti today, I've been there, you'll see a a culture that's governed by this kind of magical thinking. The evil eye is a really big deal there and shady spiritual forces that have to be appeased by the use of witch doctors. People really believe in all of it and they, they invest their little meager earnings that they have to get protective spells or some kind of magic potions or something like that to protect them from imaginary curses and the evil eye it's just absolutely spiritual darkness and a a tragic bondage of the soul in fact in haiti you can always tell the witch doctor's house because they have these really really tall poles that are out in front of their house and they have different colored flags little tiny flags flying from the tops of those poles and those colors on the flags tell you what different kind of um, powers that the witch doctor has. So a house might have only two poles, but a, a really powerful witch doctor or else just a really good business person will have like four poles. So there's all different kinds of things that they can give you spells for or whatever. But uh, a lot of them only have one or two flags. But why why limit your customer reach with just with that? You can pretend that you can do all kinds of things. So of course, um, in the ancient world just like in countries like Haiti physical ailments and diseases were out of the reach of medicine so people groped for anything that might be a cure so magic was invoked to relieve suffering that's what makes the New Testament miracles so remarkable and of such a completely different character there's no magic involved just the power of God directly working through specific chosen individuals. It really is a marvel how the Bible condemns all magic, charms, astrology, amulets, uh, the evil eye. They're not recognized in scripture as real in any way. In fact, you know, in the book of Psalms, you have all of these great prayers. The whole book of Psalms is 150 incredible prayers. And often the prayers in the book of Psalms are for protection. But they're never for protection against the evil eye or a curse or a spell ever. Ever. And that's what ancient people thought about all the time. But in the book of Psalms it's always a prayer for protection against evil human beings. People actually physically trying to hurt you or destroy your reputation or something like that. It's so interesting that there's just no recognition of any of those kind of typical things that are done in the book of Psalms because those things aren't real. And for some reason, somehow, the Jews were taught that those were not real things. Hmm, Maybe God knew that and he inspired the Bible. That might be why that came out that way but in the ancient world it was a chief concern among common people to be delivered from spells curses whatever so they're worried about that kind of stuff or or in some cultures it's the angry spirits of your ancestors that might be playing with you or messing with you and you got to deal with that or the evil eye kind of a thing but uh, all the prayers for the protection in the bible are about human evil not mystical things and that's how unique the word of god is so, everything that terrifies their neighbors for the Jew, they're not supposed to have those fears for themselves. They're supposed to not even worry about things like that. They're nothing. You don't need to pray for protection against the things the devil wants you to fear. You, can only, you only have to worry about God's sovereignty over all things in your life. The Bible does teach that there are demonic powers especially behind idols now idols are not real they're not gods that can do anything but there are demonic powers associated with them but the Old Testament does not ascribe power to idols or the powers behind idols even in this world in other words the Bible mocks idols as useless as nothing powerless but in idolatry the spiritual forces are using deception to capture men's souls so they won't turn to the living and true God. Now that is something that these dark spiritual forces actually do do. They want to keep people away from God. So Satan is very real. But in scripture you don't really find believers praying to be protected from him as though he exercises all kinds of magical and powerful forces in the universe because he doesn't do that. His, His main craft is deception. Jesus called him the father of lies. The apostles talk about his schemes. That's the kind of thing he's doing. He's a corrupter. He corrupts hu- human beings. Um, he leads them to follow their own dark desires, their hate, their lust, their malice. He gives men false religions and twisted ideas about the true faith. And that's what we have to watch out for and stand against. How did Paul say it? We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ that's what we that's how we resist that that's how we war against Satan or really really our only concern is that we avoid the ways he tries to deceive us all he can really do to us is try to persuade us to disbelieve God that's that was his only power really at the beginning when the, the fall of man happened right has God said that that's all he had to do was question whether God had spoken or not and spoken the truth so all he can really do is get us to doubt God and God's word if we measure everything by God's word Satan can't harm us there's no spells or powers out there that can harm us it's just if we doubt God's word so we don't fight him with anything like magic Uh, we are told to resist Satan to stand firm against his temptations which are always rooted in lies that's our job spiritual warfare is not spells and counter spells okay it's not Saruman versus Gandalf it's nothing like that it's trusting God versus not trusting God that's the spiritual battle that we're in it's embracing God's word in our heart as our hope our guide and the standard for all of our decisions and all the beliefs that we're going to hold versus Satan and his lies So the response to these locals to Simon is so strong, it kind of makes you wonder if he really did have powers, right? I mean, they, they look at him as the great power of God and they gave all of their attention to him. But the text doesn't actually say that he could do these amazing things, only that people were astonished by him. And honestly, all you have to do is go to a Benny Hinn crusade or spend a few weeks at Bethel Church in Reading to know that people can be completely devoted I mean with shouting and laughter and tears just devoted to people who are nothing but charlatans and manipulators crowd manipulation is an art form and some people are so good at it you might start to think they had real powers if you can put people in in the kind of a state of mind where if you wave your arms at them or blow on them they're going to fall over in, a, in some kind of delirium. That's not because you have any powers because you've, you've manipulated their psychological self. Right? And so Simon was just good at that sort of thing. And I don't think he even needed mood music under his sermons to get people all worked up. But remember now he is at the top of his game in this world of super magician kind of character. The world of magical arts. But Look what happens when Philip comes to town. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Then in verse 13, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. As he observed signs and great miracles taking place He was constantly amazed. Well why would the great power of God be amazed? Because he really couldn't do any of that stuff. So here the great power of God sees real power. And it blows him away. He he knows it's not a trick. Because he sure can't see it. He can't figure it out. So Simon himself professes faith in Jesus Christ and becomes a disciple of Philip. So he's hanging with him. And Philip's probably trying to work with him and other men, trying to get them growing in the Lord. So everything seems great. I mean, this regionally famous man has bowed the knee to Jesus and acknowledged at some level that what God does is far beyond anything he could ever do. Sounds great. But beware of celebrity converts. Sometimes it works out great. Sometimes it's genuine. But sometimes... It's a disaster and this guy is a disaster. Uh, It turns out Simon was not following Jesus for Jesus. We find out because the new church in Samaria gets a visit from two very important men. Verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the apostles heard and wanted to investigate this this next big step in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Gospels going out. Jesus talked about Judea, um, Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, then the remotest parts of the earth. Here's Samaria happening. So they send the two big guys, Peter and John, to check it out. And they find that this is a real movement of God. And and they leave something with the people there. They they grant them the apostolic blessing. They lay hands on them. And the laying on of hands grants extraordinary gifts from the Holy Spirit. What we often call sign gifts. Because they're signs of um, God's special working in, in certain situations. So verse 17. They began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now every believer has the Holy Spirit in them when they believe but as we see here this is describing an extraordinary outpouring of the spirit the kind of thing that happened on the day of Pentecost so the sign gifts are supernatural gifts like speaking in other languages or healing power or miracles or casting out demons or prophecy things like that they're the kind of gifts that Stephen and Philip received when the apostles laid hands on them And remember before the apostles laid hands on them they were already described as men of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and wise. But after laying hands on them that's when we see them starting to work miracles. So Stephen right away goes out and he's got all kinds of power. So there's only two times where these gifts are given without the laying on of hands. One is on the day of Pentecost Acts chapter 2 and then we're going to see pretty soon in Acts chapter 10. um, Something like that happens there. So clearly this special gift of the spirit is something that can be seen because Simon's going to see the fruit of it. So suddenly people have these gifts and extraordinary things are happening, probably speaking in other languages is the simplest and clearest direct thing that would happen right away. So it's something discernible. Um, And because Simon can see it, it's, it's, it's real. It's not a trick. And he wants it. I mean, what he's looking at is real power. So he tries to buy it. Verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So he didn't want the gift as much as he wanted the power to give these gifts he wanted the authority he wanted the position he wants apostolic power and he's willing to pay let me give you a quick historical note here one of one of the greatest corruptions of Christianity that really began in the Middle Ages is the selling of church offices So rich noblemen would pay huge sums of money to high church officials, sometimes even the Pope, but other high officials or sometimes local government officials if they had the power to appoint ecclesiastical offices. So in in the feudal system in the Middle Ages, everything was based on this feudal society and this structure, um, rich men would have everything would go to their son because they wouldn't want to divide up their land. So if they had five kids, their son would get everything, the first son. The other sons, you know, had to find jobs for them or some place for them to go, go f- fight in the Crusades or a really good place to park them, to, to give them a, 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 ma- a living of their own was to give them ecclesiastical offices. So they would pay somebody to appoint them to some church office, even bishops. In fact, in France, there was a 10-year-old boy who was made an archbishop at 10 years old not because he was godly but because his father had 100,000 ducats to give somebody I mean that's a lot of money but uh, you could buy anything you want in the church so spiritual qualifications were not even considered so you had all these people in high positions in the church in the middle ages that had no spiritual life whatsoever had no morals um, no spiritual qualifications were even considered and you know what they call that practice what they called it back then simony simony named after simon this guy here in the book of acts so he's a buyer he wants to buy ecclesiastical power god's power so back in our text now simon is coming into focus here we start to see his motives for professing jesus and getting baptized he was enamored of the power that philip had and he was willing to place himself under philip because he recognized That the things that Philip was doing. Are things that he could not do. Way beyond his abilities. But when he saw that the apostles. Could grant these powers. Simon saw an amazing opportunity. For himself. Not just to have the gifts. But to sell them. He could sell these gifts. Give this authority to me as well. So that everyone on whom I lay my hands. May receive the Holy Spirit. And right away. Peter sees this for what it is. Verse 20. Peter said to him. May your silver. Perish. With you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God. With money. You have no part. Or portion. In this matter. For your heart is not right. Before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness. And pray the Lord. That if possible. The intention of your heart. Is may be forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity that's really strong language on Peter's part so and that's what Simon needed to hear people sometimes need very direct confrontation about their sin because they're so messed up they're not going to see it and so Peter is really giving him an opportunity to repent here he is a lost man that somehow could act the Christian well enough that Philip would baptize him and even kind of take him under his wing a little bit so Peter sees that Simon's not saved and he says may your silver perish with you he's telling him he's on a path to destruction he tells him he's not in a place to have any spiritual blessing because his heart is not right before God he hasn't even grasped what Jesus is all about he just sees it as a source of power because he has magical thinking so he's thinking like he always has. He's not a changed person. There's no evidence of change in his heart. There's, there's a bitterness there that he's never turned from. He's still in bondage to sin. He has not humbled himself. But Peter tells him he can still repent. That's what's been missing, repentance. There's been no repentance, no inward turn of the heart to God. And that's what there has to be if you don't turn humbly to God and confess your sins and seek his forgiveness for Jesus sake you are not saved. It's that simple. So I'm sure Philip preached repentance and required that for baptism but whatever Simon said at his baptism repentance and humility were not present in him. People can tell you all kinds of things that it's not real in their heart. So Peter says Simon you can still repent and Simon's answer shows exactly where his heart is. Verse 24 but Simon answered and said pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He, he's afraid of judgment but he won't even pray himself. So "Well, you pray for me? You know, Pharaoh did that f- 1400 years before this asking Moses to pray for him but it didn't soften his heart at all it's just he was just scared for a little bit so Simon won't pray he sees everything as power dynamics he's afraid he's been outgunned if you will and now he can't share in this new power so he just doesn't understand nor is he able to humble himself to find out so a man of his natural gifts to con people he could have been a very great danger in the church this brand new church in Samaria if Peter had not immediately seen what kind of man Simon was he could have destroyed the Samaritan church right there from the start from inside today Simon would be a great megachurch pastor Uh, he would he would know exactly how to play that big game not that all megachurch pastors are bad but there's quite a few that are (laughs) And he would just fit right in with that, manipulating people, controlling people, playing people for money. So the story of Simon the Great ends here. I I wish we had more about him, but uh, what we have is um, there for a reason. We learn a lot about what faith in Christ is not, it isn't anything like what was common in the ancient world and a lot of religion today. A tool to manipulate your environment or the forces of nature or people a a, a source of good luck even a way to power so what Jesus brings is not just greater than that it's completely different than that it's wholly other he is offering a relationship with the living God through his own blood God the creator can be your intimate friend through Christ there's no power for its own sake in the church there was power but apostolic power points people to the truth and Jesus is the truth and Simon couldn't see that he didn't get that I should mention that Simon um, has quite a future according to early church history now it's hard to separate fact from fiction Um, there's a lot of legendary stories in the later centuries of the church but pretty early on in the second century Simon Magus was known and talked about a lot by the early church fathers in fact a number of them so there might be some truth to some of this but they said that Simon founded the very first great cult uh, that Christianity had to contend with in a major way and that was called Gnosticism they said that he was one of the founders of Gnosticism and he was sort of an opponent to Peter all through his ministry one version of events says that simon became very influential in rome and he proclaimed himself the incarnation of the supreme god and a statue was actually made for him there by his followers with the inscription simon the holy god and he partnered with a former prostitute from Tyre named helen and she became um she was called the incarnation of divine wisdom. So they kind of be- were a team there. And according to Hippolytus, an early church father, Simon died in Rome while Peter and Paul were there. The story is, he, he said, bury me alive and in three days I'll rise again. But he didn't. So that was the real end of Simon, if that stories are true. I, I hope what's really true is that he repented somewhere down the line, but uh, we're not ever told that. So, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching to more Samaritans on the way. Verse 25. When they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So it's a great way to end a sad story of a false convert. A man whose heart was not right with God. But Luke is going to contrast this insincere, greedy man with a wonderful story of a man who readily and truly embraced Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So we're going to move from Samaria, and wait do you see how we move. Philip's going to move from Samaria all the way down to the road to Ethiopia. And that's for next time. Okay, let's pray. Our great God, we're so thankful you deliver us from the darkness of superstition and foolishness and all the things that so many people believe in. You are the only power in the universe that is of any significance. Everything else is man-made or deception by spiritual forces, Lord. But you are above all things. You are the great God and you love us so much you sent Jesus to die for our sins and he did so willingly and now he is our exalted Lord and Savior, God the Son, the source of all true power, And the greatest gift, the greatest gift is him as a savior for our sins so we can be with you eternally forever. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, next time we'll see you on the road to Ethiopia.